Hey everybody, welcome to the Tome to the Weather Machine podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hall. Today I sit down and talk with Daniel Clagg out of New York City. These are some pretty crazy times we find ourselves in. I know a lot of musicians have canceled their tours. Uh, a lot of people who work in kind of music industry related jobs are now out of work. Musicians have lost a viable source of income for themselves. Many find themselves in kind of some desperate times. Not to mention all of this happening in the midst of a global pandemic that has a lot of us uh, pretty shook and has really kind of exposed the fragility of this system that we live in. So to make some sense of this and to kind of, in some ways, I think, maybe put a timestamp on this, uh, I've decided to reach out and kind of double the amount of interviews that I'm doing a week. I'm going to try to do two a week. The first interview with Daniel Clagg is something that I've tried to kind of get together for a while. And it's really interesting to hear him living in New York City, kind of experiencing the the emptiness of, of the city and kind of the surreal quality that he finds himself right now. Not to mention, you know, I, I want these interviews to continue their focus of sort of music through human development and understand kind of where Daniel's coming from musically. It's a good interview, and I'm, I'm really happy to, to talk to him. Um, you can support Daniel by buying music from his band camp. Um, right now, I think it's a pretty crucial time that if you have the means, if you're, you know, if you haven't been laid off, if you're still able to kind of maintain your income, that you really consciously try to support artists who depend on record sales um, to kind of support them while they're not able to tour uh, and do some of those other things that require an audience. So if you want to support the podcast, and by all means, if um, if it's not something that you're able to do, then please don't. But if, if you want to support the podcast, please consider throwing a couple bucks um, our way on Patreon. This month, Patreon subscribers will receive a mixtape that Daniel put together, as well as a, a, an alternate mix that I put together for the podcast. I hope you enjoy this, and yeah, please support Daniel's music. From Midwife, David Nance, Seth Graham, Kiaville, Mike from Uniform, Lee Noble, Braden J. I am sitting here with Daniel Flagg uh, from New York City. Um, I came across Daniel's music last year on a Muzan Editions uh, tape batch uh, called True Neutral that he put out. And so, yeah, I've, this is the first of um, many interviews that I'm going to do. Uh, I have a little bit more time now um, due to Corona. And I'm really interested in talking to people about um, not only how Corona, you know, how, how this whole thing has impacted musicians and, and people who are working in um, kind of auxiliary music positions like radio and booking, um, but I also want to, you know, I, I've been meaning to talk to Daniel for a long time, so I'm really interested 
just hearing about how he got into um, creating kind of the uh, textural like ambient music that he that he creates. Um, but I usually do one of these a month. I think I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try to do like one a week or one every other week, just because you know I I think a lot of people. Well, a lot of musicians have time on their hands now, and um, I think one really important way to get through kind of these world upending things is to create a sense of community, to put some structure around days and stuff like that. So I'll, uh, yeah, I'll be producing quite a few of these if, you know, things go according to plan. Uh, so Daniel, we'll, we'll start with, with you. Where, um, you're living in New York City now. Um, are you from there originally or, or are you a transplant? So I, uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, near Princeton, uh, New Jersey, uh, went to school, uh, went to college in upstate New York, and then uh, moved to New York City immediately after college. Um, and okay. so that was 2006. I moved to New York City, and I've been here since. Where did you go to college? Uh, Hamilton College. It's a, like a small liberal arts school about an hour east of Syracuse. Okay. If you like, look at a map of New York State and were to try to find the geometric center it's almost right there i'm really i'm actually pretty familiar with that part of the country okay uh so my wife is from upstate pennsylvania so okay. uh elmira binghamton um yeah. yeah that that area of new york I'm, I'm pretty familiar with so in kind of the, the the structure that i like to do these interviews with um, growing up in, in New Jersey, what do you remember um, listening to as a kid? What do you remember maybe being on in the house or, or maybe the first time where you discovered like, oh shit, music is a thing, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that, is, that is separate from any other kind of uh, thing that exists? Um, so uh, my dad has probably the narrowest music taste of anyone I've ever met. Um, and so growing up, uh, pretty much all we heard in the house was Meatloaf um, and like Meatloaf that's, adjacent artists. That's, that's his niche is like 70s power ballads. He loves it, loves it. Um, I get that. Like my first concert was a Meatloaf concert. Um, and like it, you just couldn't every weekend, uh, like one of the bad out of hells was played end to end in the house. And so it's, it's kind of what I grew up with at a very young age. Um, and like, by the time I started like seeking out music on my own, I was very against it. Um, I think not in principle so much as like, I had just heard this one album so many times growing up that I, I was ready to chart my own path. Um, so, I'm like, man, I feel like that's kind of like peaking really early. Like just the, like the sheer size of like those meatloaf songs. Um, how did you, so was maybe getting into, and you might answer this later, but maybe getting into more minimal music, kind of a reaction against that? Um, maybe not intentionally, um, but yeah, I mean, those songs are so um, maximal. I right? love them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't even know how to begin to, to compose something like that. Um, but I, I do think, and maybe we'll talk about it later, but I, I think I sort of ended up in, in the ambient uh, hole um, different, through a different path. 
Okay. Okay. Got it. So meatloaf was uh, and meat like so meatloaf and meatloaf adjacent music. So what would be like a meatloaf adjacent like like comparison? Um, like, so like, meatloaf kind of stands alone. So um, meatloaf, uh, at least uh, the Bad Out of Hell records are written by this guy Jim Steinman. Um, who is a songwriter who like wrote for other artists of that era. So like, I think the big oh, one is, yeah. is like Bonnie Tyler. Um, um, I'm sure you've heard the turn around. Oh yeah, turn, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, That's which is a very song. sort of meatloafian yeah. kind of, okay. yeah. um, kind of thing. So I can tell you that one of the uh, mind blowing experiences I had with music growing up, and now that you mentioned that song, um, is I realized listening to I Could Do Anything for Love, but I won't do that by Meatloaf, that the studio, that like what I'm listening to is like an artifice, right? Because there's a, there's a time where he, his vocals like overlap and then his other vocal, like his like another line comes in like before that ends. And I'm like, wait, the human voice can't do that. Like there must be like somebody who is like behind the scenes, like, arranging these things in such a way uh, that it really, yeah, it really blew my mind. And so now that I'm thinking of that turnaround Bright Eyes, like they do that, like the, uh -huh. like the, uh, the chorus like ends before like the other line like begins. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> I also think like Bruce Springsteen, like he has some of those moments, like yeah. Road, where just like everything's just like crashing in and yeah down around you was was being from new jersey was was the boss uh bruce springsteen was guy. definitely around not as much uh in the house as um as meatloaf but uh yeah uh born in the usa and born to run were, were yeah. big Great. albums e street band yeah yeah it's a cacophony i love it max weinberg is a phenomenal drummer and he doesn't get credit for it um, and so moving out of, uh, I guess, moving out of Meatloaf, what music do you remember, like, listening to, like, on your own or seeking um, on your own? Um, so, like, at my most sort of formative years, like, I don't know, maybe 13 or 14 years old, uh, like, Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Californication had come out. Oh, wow. Okay. So that, uh, that era of Californication. Um, and how old were you? I was... Uh, probably 14. Okay, yeah, that's, we're probably about the same age then. Yeah, I'm 35. Yeah, okay, uh, same. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I saw them on that tour, uh, oh, wow. like in support of that album, and it was um, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Foo Fighters, who I was kind of prepared for as a, as a young teen. Um, but the opening band was Blonde Redhead, which um, what a wild opening act. Yeah, which like didn't make sense. Um, yeah. And I saw them in Camden, New Jersey, and the audience um, was not respectful at all. I was going to ask, like, I bet people hated that. Hated it. Um, yeah. But I was so like brought in by this band who I had never heard of. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, something about, and I couldn't articulate like what it was that was like, wow, this is really phenomenal. Um, and I remember coming home and going to the local record store, Princeton Record Exchange, and um, buying two Blonde Redhead CDs, um, and then like doing some internet research and finding out that 
Blonde Redhead sounds like this band called Sonic Youth. And so I went out and bought some Sonic Youth CDs and that kind of sent me down this rabbit hole of experimental music. Very cool. Yeah, I feel like Sonic Youth is such a big springboard for for experimental music, for sure. Um, so what chasing down the rabbit hole of bands like Sonic Youth or maybe adjacent to Sonic Youth, do you remember some kind of big, uh, would they be purchases? Like, were you like actively buying music? Like, at, oh yeah, at definitely. Age? Yeah, there yeah, were, yeah. You know, lots of CDs. Yep, same. <laughs> uh, what are some what are some kind of pivotal purchases that you remember uh, um, buying from that era? Yeah, so I mean, um, also around this time, like um, that movie Twenty Four Hour Party People came out. Yeah, um, such a and, good one. And so, like that, like sent me down this this kind of parallel path of like Joy Division and and New Order and and all these Factory Record bands and this kind of post punk and um getting into the cure um i don't know and then like following the sonic youth side getting into bands like boredoms um i don't know yeah so what about um oh real quick i what i love about 24-hour party people is that that um that movie got me really into a certain ratio oh yeah um, which is one of hands down one of my favorite bands of all time um what so what was it about the Blonde Redhead show that kind of like clued you into that or broke your brain in, in a way that other people weren't, uh, weren't digging so much? So, and I don't think I could have articulated it at the time, um, but like they weren't using standard tunings. Um, they, not all their songs were in 4-4. Mm -hmm. um, the... Um, The, I mean, she was very confrontational um, with her vocal delivery. Um, I don't know. I just hadn't, it wasn't in my, like, um, like up until that point, like everything I knew about music, I learned from like VH1, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, uh, it was just so different to, to see a band that wasn't necessarily plugged into this kind of like classic rock um narrative um i don't know yeah that's, that's interesting and, and i think like you know 20 years um like 20 years removed i wonder if they would be you, you know like if vh1 like still existed like thinking of them sort of like like if vh if vh1 existed in kind of the same format that it existed when you were 14 like if 14 year olds now would be watching it and like watching some retrospective of like, you know, noisy 90s, you know, like, uh, uh, like guitar rock bands, you know? Yeah, um, it would be really interesting to like, say what I consider like underground music, like, mm -hmm. like being described on a platform like this. I don't know. But it, it is cool. I mean, I, I remember, I remember that. Um, well, I don't remember exactly when, but having a clear like, um, uh distinction in my mind that like and i think it was like when i got like into punk like in you know like middle school is that there is this whole like this whole world that isn't being played on the radio but is really important and um and then it's it's kind of hard, like 
it's for me I, and I think maybe a lot of people who have kind of the same personality quirk is like you want to be a completist you want to like know everything you can about you know like a, a genre or, or like a band or you know something and um to know that there's like a whole other subgenre um of underground music that wasn't punk was just like so frustrating to me but also like really exciting just like right. oh, shit, now i gotta go learn about this you know right no um, absolutely i mean i found like to me like the recommended if you like section of last fm and all mm. music were important like yeah i like this band and i need to listen to these three or four other bands that this website tells me are related when i would go into the computer lab like in like middle school and stuff like that and like early in high school like that's all i would do it was just like just go on all music and just like but it was so frustrating because like i had no way uh to really listen to it and so i just have these lists of like bands that just right. like existed and then like that. like oh my god like i want a job so i could just like buy all of this music right I mean, I had a little index card that I kept in my wallet of like CDs to buy, like, and so I'd take it with me to the record shop and take it out and be like, oh yeah, I should buy this album. And, you know, sometimes it was not what I was hoping and, you know, oh, kind, yeah, of, kind I of a dud. Definitely had, yeah, I definitely had a couple of duds where I remember bringing a CD back and, then, <laughs> and I'm like, I'd like to return this. And they're like, why? I'm like, uh, I don't like it. <laughs> it's you can't. And I remember, like the the clerk was like, you know, it's like kind of your like stereotypical like high fidelity, you know, you know, she's like, and I was like, like maybe like fifteen, just like just so shy, and she's just like, you can't return a CD because it sucks, and I'm just like, oh, okay, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I'll never come in here again. <laughs> um, so the, so yeah, I can definitely understand now. So, like more of a lineage between like Sonic Youthy bands and kind of what what you're doing. Um, do you remember like any like was there a scene in Princeton or like was there a scene in like uh, New Jersey? So at that time, like the like emo was at its height, and so oh, hell like, yeah Thursday. Uh, so like Thursday and Save yeah. the Day and all these bands. Were, oh my god, that's right. Yeah, were, get, yeah, uh, local, but. To be honest, like th this was not my scene. Sure. Um, uh, and, I mean, I was in a band in high school, and most of the other bandmates, like this, was what they were very much interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, these were kind of short-lived bands. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, by the time I got to college and started starting bands in college, um, my first band in college, I think. That we had three band members, and uh, between the three of us, we had less than a year of experience on our instruments. Um, and so we started out like playing, like, what are songs that we love that are easy to play because we're we're all still learning. And so it was a lot of like Joy Division and The Cure. Yep. Um, and um, you know, from there. Uh, you know, as folks graduated, um, I had this idea that I wanted to, so I was the bass player um, in these college bands. Um, and I had this idea that I wanted to continue making music um, by myself um, and thought that that would be really difficult to do as a solo bass player. 
who wasn't that good at bass. Yeah, there's only a couple of those that exist, and, and they, yeah, yeah. And they're very talented. Exactly, right? yeah, they're not just like, I, so I play bass in a, in a band right now, and Disorder was the first song that I learned, and uh -huh. like, I learned to play the bass like three years ago with like never learning anything. Okay. And, um, and I, I always joke that like, uh, like I'm gonna do like an avant-garde performance of like me just like learn, like learning to play songs on YouTube, like, <laughs> and just being like, Okay, wait. Is that an E? Oh shit! All right, hold on, hold on. No, I, I got this. I got this. <laughs> I, I pull it out as a threat if, like, uh, you know, if if um, somebody refuses to like book book us or something. <laughs> I think right, there could fine. be a separate thread on uh, on Tome to the Weather Machine. Yeah, yeah. Of, of, to... of me just like learning how to play bass songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, um, so yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, not too many people can do that. Like, I'm thinking of like C.J. Boyd <laughs> as like some. I don't think I know who that is. Okay, he's a um, he's a uh, art artist who his primary instrument is like bass, but then he also plays like the double bass and okay. stuff like that. But um, he's just all, like an insanely talented bassist who can do like solo bass stuff with loops and stuff like that. So, yeah, not too many. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so you wanted to make uh, solo music. Bass is your primary instrument. Where do we go from there? So, I mean, at this time, I mean, the other, one of the other um, influences that have, had crept up on me at this time was the band Suicide. Oh, um, yeah. And um, it was really powerful to me to know that uh, it was just like drum machine synthesizer um vocals um and like a little delay pedal um uh it was just so powerful um i mean the same way that like um you know a punk band is like the ramones or a punk band like that kind of um teaches the lesson that like um anyone can be in a band um and i think suicide takes it a step further like anyone can be a band just by themselves with some rudimentary tools. Um, and so my very early solo, um, I'll call them experiments, um, was like drum machine, a little Elisa synthesizer, and like me like doing my very best to sound like suicide. Um, which eventually I realized that I'm not a great vocalist. Um, my lyrics were pretty dumb. Um, my drum programming was not so hot. Um, but anyway, the, the part that I s wanted to continue to pursue was the kind of synthesizer, more textural aspect of the sound and, and that kind of folded in on itself um, and eventually became a sort of ambient project. Yeah, so what were, um, so Suicide a big influence in just in terms of exploring like electronics and uh, drum machines and synthesizers and stuff. How how did your music then kind of take the route of kind of the more kind of ambient? Um, because I mean, when, when I think about you know your music, like I mean, it isn't like just these static kind of ambient paths. There's actually like a lot of rhythm and a lot of um, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I I can hear kind of some of those more rhythmic elements that you know a, a drum machine might make or you know somebody literally playing this synthesizer might make um how 
how did you kind of decide to kind of go down this uh, this route of creating more kind of textual ambient music? Um, so a lot of it was like trying to make music that I would want to listen to. Um, right. And so at this point in my life, I was uh, I was really interested in this music. Um, you know, artists like Tim Hecker and Finesse, um, Growing, uh, Black Dice. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, trying to, I mean, I listen to my music on my headphones all the time because I make the kind of music I want to make. Sure. And it, sure. um, you know, is the kind of thing I want to listen to on my commute in the morning. Um, the kind of thing that's not going to be distracting while I'm reading. I don't know. So you were listening to kind of these like Tim Hecker, Finesse, um, and like Black Dice type kind of stuff. Was there a, a, a period where like you realized that you had to like purchase a lot of gear to make this or did you kind of keep things pretty simple and rudimentary? Um, so in terms of gear, um, I do keep it simple if only because I get to most gigs by subway. And so sure. like, if I can't fit it in a backpack, um, it's not coming with me. Yeah. Um, and so like my live setup is really like a mixer, um, two samplers, some effects pedals, an iPad, and that's really it. That's awesome. I like, I like that in some ways where you live kind of dictates the way that your music sounds because of what you can fit in a backpack. That's awesome. So, um, playing, do you play out quite a bit in New York? Um, I try to, it's been a little, it's kind of been slower in the last couple of years. Um, I think a combination of, you know, getting older and, uh, having to wake up for work the next day. Um, yep. and that racket. you know, venues closing, um, yeah. and you know, you build up relationships with a venue or a group of artists and then those places close and you have to start building those relationships up from scratch. And I've, you know, there's been several cycles of this since yeah. you know, being here since 2006. Um, so yeah, I mean, I try to play shows when I can. Um, I try to be more kind of choosy about which shows I do play. I mean, it, it, it has to be really special for me to want to come out and play a late show on a Tuesday night. For sure. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting um, being in Cincinnati where there's like the Eurorack guy and the, you know, like a, maybe two or three ambient people, right? <laughs> um, where in, in New York, you're, you know, kind of spoiled for choice. Does it kind of, um, do you feel like there's a tight-knit community there or is it is it so big that sort of like, maybe each kind of borough has their own kind of scene going on with, um, you know, people who are kind of drawn to the same music? Or do you feel like a, across sort of like, you know, this kind of broader experimental ambient world that everybody kind of knows one another and, you know, works, plays each other's shows, works on projects, stuff like that? Um, so I do think New York is, uh, because of its size, there are, um, a lot of different scenes. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff going on that I'm really not tapped into, um, at least not directly. Um, and there's, I mean, there's some overlap in scenes, like, 
um, you might have a sort of ambient uh, artist who kind of comes from a more classical background play a show with an ambient artist that comes from a more like noise or metal background. Um, and then, you know, like a harsh noise act and a electro pop act all on the same bill. Um, but I, I do think it's, um, it's different from smaller cities where you get these bills where um, it's just like, here are four people that live here and there are four different genres and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. I'm with, with the venues closing down, have you noticed that happening more recently or is that kind of just a, a cyclical thing that, that has happened in New York? Um, I do think it sort of has come in waves. Um, and I think, uh, related to like, as neighborhoods get gentrified, like pl places close down and then new places pop up in another neighborhood. And then, you know, but you know, it's, it's all, I feel like every venue that I've really like had a good relationship with has had like a solid, like three year run and then folded. Um, and you know, gone through several cycles of this now. What's a venue that you that you miss like the most? Um, so there's a venue uh, called Monkey Town that I, I first uh, started playing shows at when I first moved here in, in 2006, 2007, um, uh, which is like the back room of a restaurant. Um, and um, the back, it was a cube. And so all four walls of the cube were um, projector screens and so there were these four projectors sus suspended from the ceiling and they had this, these couches around the perimeter of the room um, and so um, artists would perform in the middle of the room in the middle of these projections um, and then everyone in the room would be served dinner or drinks from the restaurant so it was like this like almost this like weird like theater in the round audio visual thing that was a really special place amazing um, I saw Damo Suzuki there, which was really Whoa. fantastic. Yeah. Whoa. Is it big? It doesn't sound no, like it was a small, it was a small room it was kind of, uh, special that they, they, they pulled out all the couches and like crammed sure. as many people as they could for the Damo yeah, Suzuki yeah. show. Wow. Wow. Um, so you also have a, a radio show. Tell me, tell me about your radio show. Um, so it's called Dense Liquid. It's on, uh, Newtown Radio. Uh, which is an internet-only radio station uh, based in Brooklyn. Um, I had guested on uh, the Stadiums and Shrines uh, okay, radio yeah. show on uh, Newtown Radio a couple of times over the last five or six years since Dave um, started doing that radio show. Um, and eventually I reached out to him and said, hey, you know, I think I you know, I did college radio as a, as a student and um, thought I might want to get back into doing something regularly. Um, and so I reached out to Dave from Stadiums and Shrines and he put me in touch with the Newtown Radio folks who found a spot on the schedule for me. So now I do cool. Sunday, every other Sunday I do a two hour radio show. Um, it's a combination of me DJing stuff that I like um, but I also try to have a guest on every show who will either like play a live set in the studio or um, 
call in and do an interview and send me a guest mix or um, some recording in their catalog. Um, and so it's been like a really nice opportunity. Um, it kind of scratches my creative itch, um, but also like gives me this opportunity to like pick the brains of other creative people. Who are some notable folks that you've had on the show? Um, Daniel Weich was my most recent guest. Um, he called in a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, I think probably the biggest name artist I've had on was Greg Fox. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, he, did, he did a modular synth set um, in the studio. Um, the, my friend, the Spookfish, played a set. Um, they're from, uh, they're kind of from upstate New York, that area. Yeah. Right? So uh, Dan from the Spookfish was in New York City for a while um, and is now living in Poughkeepsie. Uh, not Poughkeepsie. Um, uh, one of the other SUNY school areas. Right. I forget which, which city. Um, it'll come to me. Um, and then, um, I don't know, I had, um, I was supposed to do my, well, so Newtown Radio is now closed um, because of the coronavirus. Um, I was going to have Equip on my show um, this week. Okay. Um, not, not familiar. Yeah, Equip is, um, is based in Chicago um, and does like a, um, it's kind of vaporwave influenced like video game music. Um, cool. If I was going to peg it in a corner. Um, yeah. So with, um, so I think this is going to be kind of a, a running theme in a lot of the interviews that I do. Um, you know, this is uh, impacting people across the board in, you know, in tons of, you know, I, I think a lot of attention, rightly so, is is um, you know paid to artists whose livelihood is is touring and his livelihood is you know making music. But then, um, you know, there's all these kind of auxiliary um, industries that kind of branch out from you know from performing live. Um, every everybody from you know people who book you know, booking agents to festival directors. Um, you know, to, you know, the towns that, you know, festivals are played in, you know, everything like that. Um, so Newtown is, has been closed due to the coronavirus. Um, what is it, what's it like in New York right now? Is, is, are people, are people on lockdown? Have you guys closed restaurants and bars? Um, so uh, it's not an official lockdown. Um, okay. But, um, you know, we went out for a walk earlier this afternoon. Um, uh, pretty much every store is closed. Um, bars and restaurants are uh, open for takeout. Um, yeah, same. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's very strange to um, walk around a city that is usually so densely packed with pedestrians um, and have people coming from the other direction, like avoid each other, right? Right. Oh, and wow, give, yeah. give you the space. And it's, I mean, it's, it's not totally dead. Um, I mean, there's still people walking around, um, but I, you know, I've never seen the city um, this quiet. Wow, wow. I remember being in New York um, 
directly after Hurricane Sandy. Um, we were living overseas and came in like right after that. And I remember taking a, a taxi um, and just like, just blocks like didn't have power yet. You know, it was just like, nobody was out. It was super eerie. Right. That's the only other incident that I remember yeah. things kind of being this quiet. Wow. So um, how, so with New York, so New York doesn't have like an official lockdown, but it sounds like a lot of people are staying in place. Restaurants are closing. Right. Um, I mean, people aren't taking the subway. Um, oh, wow. So people are just kind of staying in their neighborhoods for the most sure, part. Sure. Um, how, and so, you know, you've been affected, you know, your radio show is, um, you know, obviously not, not going on anymore. But how do you see this impacting, you know, some of these more auxiliary um, industries in, in music, right. if, you know, as this continues to um, unfold and, you know, we might even be exposed to even more sort of harsher kind of like uh, stay, you know, shelter in place and stuff like that? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I am very lucky um, because my, my day job is an office gig and I can work from home. Um, and so, um, for me, while this is inconvenient and I'm sharing a one bedroom apartment with my wife, um, and navigating that, you know, I'm not at the moment worrying about income. Yeah. Um, and so many creative people in this city are, um, I mean, so many people, their main gig is, is a service industry gig or is related to, to, the, the music industry in some way you know, live music. Um, and it's those folks that, you know, um, I think are particularly vulnerable at this time. And, you know, there's so many um, businesses, I mean, not just related to music, um, um, but there's so many businesses that are temporarily closed that I wonder if they will ever reopen. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's hard to, we are not good at predicting things. So, you know, I, I'm reluctant to, yeah, to kind of say what this things are going to look like in a month or two. Um, I mean, a week ago, I uh, was still taking New Jersey Transit every day. Um, so, I mean, this thing is, has um, changed so quickly that it's it's really hard to predict um, yeah. what's coming. How do you, so, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, that's one of the things just, we just don't know kind of what is going to happen or kind of the, how long things will be different. Um, what are some ways that you're seeing artists support each other um, and people who are more kind of, you know, relied for their income on being in the creative field? How, how are you seeing people um, supporting each other and, re and reaching out? Um, so I've seen a lot. Uh, so. So first of all, um, you know, Bandcamp is, is um, doing this Friday uh, their no fee, um, <laughs> or so they're not taking their cut of any um, sales uh, on this Friday. So I would encourage folks, um, if there's an artist they care about, to throw them some Bandcamp dollars um, yeah. this week or, or, you know, thereafter. Um, I've started to see more and more folks live streaming things, um, either on Facebook or other channels. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of want to try and um, record um, during this time. I haven't really been in the right headspace to get started. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to see, I mean, being isolated from other folks, it's kind of hard to see like how folks are helping each other out at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that this is really exposing is, um, you know, if you, if you don't play music or you're not kind of involved in, um, like outside of it, music kind of seems like it, or like live music, for example, or, you know, the way that you get your music, it almost seems like seamless, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, that band is playing at a bar, right? So obviously they, they're fine, right? Like, like, or, or like, or somehow they're getting paid, right? Somehow this mechanism is happening where the gears are turning so that that band is then able to get to the next town to play music, right? And the, and, and then they record an album and that album shows up on your Spotify and the world just kind of keeps turning. I think what people, I mean, I, I hope that what this really highlights is that it doesn't work like that. <laughs> that, that like the slightest stress on this will cause, you know, huge, huge ripples. Um, and that the way that we've currently structured things in the way that we sort of value art or the way that we receive music is not, it's just like systemically not stable. <laughs> right. And, and, and I mean, the, the reality is that most folks making experimental music are not making money from making experimental no, music. Absolutely not. And, and I think what I found, you know, especially just like, you know, like running a label is that like, I would say, I, I, I have no metrics on this, but I would say like a majority of people who buy records, you know, who buy experimental records are also experimental musicians, right? right. A lot of times, like, I'll, like, you know, I'll get like a, a sale and be like, oh, thanks, you know, like person who, like a show I booked, like, you know, a couple months ago or something like that. Um, just because I know that they're, you know, they're, they're, yeah, it's a small circle, but um, I'm, I'm just really kind of like wondering, like, without the financial, like if somebody's not getting money coming in, are we gonna see, like, they're just not able to like uh, financially support one another, kind of what what that is going to, to you know, what that, what's gonna happen with that? And so I'm, I'm really, really like hoping that like this message gets out to people who maybe don't buy music that much, right? Yeah. Who, who like maybe did for a while when kind of like, you know, like vinyl was kind of making a comeback and now they get everything through Spotify. Like, I really hope this sends a huge message that like, like, yo, like you have like, you have a finite uh, limit of choices that you can make of where you spend your money, right? Um, that like, if you want to, if you like music and you want it to continue, like just buy like a record a month. You know, if like you weren't buying anything before, just buy a record a month, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not, you don't have to, you know, be like this insane collector, but like, if you like something or you are friends with people who make music, just consider like, you know, budgeting like 16 to 20 bucks, maybe a, like a month to buy some music. Um, I really, really hope that this, yeah, 
that this just shows the structural inequality that exists in just making you know making music that you that you want to hear right we we're such you know passive receivers of of music and we're so um and i think it's we're, we're made this way that we just have no idea like how stuff gets to us right and if we did maybe we would change our priorities a little bit i don't know i i'm, I'm thinking this is like when I when I became vegetarian, you know, for for six years after watching a documentary in college about like the like the meat industry, you know, and all of a sudden this this whole system that was so invisible to me, um, from not only like the farmers that like industrialized agriculture, you know, displaces and the just like the inhumane way that we you know get get meat like all of a sudden that became like so glaringly like apparent to me that like it just didn't seem like oh like this meat is something that we get at a supermarket and that's more that i you know that's as much as i need to think about it so i'm yeah i'm really really hoping that we're 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 reaching more people than just like our kind of insular community that goes to each other's shows and buys each other's music um i really can't yeah i really hope that we were we're showing the plight of like the you know, the creative, you know, person who does this for a living. I'm fortunate enough to be able to work from home, you know, um, definitely not my, um, you know, not my source, wide subliquor is not a, not a source of income, <laughs> but, um, you know, my inability to see my therapy clients, um, that is sort of like the, the thing that allows me to put out records is <laughs> like, you know, having a second job that offsets the cost of, of being able to put out music, like, I'm starting to kind of scramble a little bit and, and think like, oh shit, like I've got like every month something coming out. Like, am I able to do that? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's far, it's, it's far reaching. Right. I mean, all re- prior to this, you know, people were barely scraping by. Um, yeah. And so it, it'll, I mean, we'll see how things look in a couple of months. Yeah. And I, I really, I, I love this idea um, and something that I'm seeing a lot is the live streaming um, shows, right? Um, and and like explicit like um, uh, calls to, like to monetize it, right? It's just like, hey, if you enjoyed this, like this, I'm glad you did, but like maybe consider you know throwing five bucks my way, um, which is the like eternal plight of like doing DIY shows, right? Is <laughs> um, is you know like trying to get people to understand that like yeah like you when you're making when you're when you're purchased like you can pay like a five dollar cover or buy a tape or you can like you know uh spend twenty dollars at the bar you know what i mean like there should be some kind of like conscious decision about like where we're spending our money Mm -hmm. i don't know i feel like that's a little bit of a rant but (laughs) that's okay (laughs) i think that's but I, i mean yeah i think that is like what I'm hoping that's what happens, and I'm hoping that by doing more of these interviews, um, you know, people get, kind of get to hear just how people are kind of experiencing, you know, this really unprecedented in our lifetime, at least, um, thing. So um, I heard your tape on uh, on Muzan Editions. How did you get connected with uh, like Joshua and, and those folks out there in Japan? So um, my wife and I went a trip, went on a trip to Japan in. Um, spring of I think 2018 Um, and as I was gearing up for that trip I was um, 
looking to play some shows in Japan while I was there. Um, and I reached out a to a couple of folks um, who had been there uh, and someone um, put me in touch with, with Josh. Um, um, and so he hosted a show um, in Kobe um, that I played when I was out there. Um, and um, it turns out that he had already, prior to me making this contact, he had already known who I was and was oh, already, cool. already a fan of my music. And so um, he suggested um, me doing a, a, like a tour release to, to go with that, um, um, with that show that I was playing there. Um, and I just didn't have enough time to get something together that I was happy with um, in advance of my trip. Um, but we stayed in touch and, and I finally finished an album and, um, you know, got back in touch and they were happy to put it out. Very cool. What do you have coming up? Um, do you have any, are you working on any, any new stuff that you have kind of on the horizon or you want to plug? Um, so I haven't, uh, I recorded something back in November that isn't quite an album yet. Um, so I want to keep kind of working on that. Um, I mean, I do, I guess I should take advantage of this being stuck at home situation. Um, but I mean, like I said, I haven't been in the um, yeah. particularly creative yeah. headspace. You know, I, I think that's one thing um, that is important. I, I saw something that William Tyler wrote where it's just like, hey, musicians, like, I know that like, there's a lot of, um, sorry, my, that's my dog in the background okay. um, rubbing her body on the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> um, William Tyler said something to the effect of like, you know, don't like just because you're have more time on your hands, like don't rush like recording your masterpiece. Like you're also human who needs to like deal with this insanity, right? This isn't just you know, doesn't have to be just an excuse to work more, you know. So, yeah, wise yeah. so, words. Uh, so I've been playing some video games, uh, cool. and when that gets old, maybe it'll be time to. <laughs> to continue working on yeah. some music. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for um, agreeing to sit down and, and chat with me. This has yeah. been really nice and long, long time coming. Um, I'll definitely, um, you know, be directing folks uh, to know where they can buy, buy your music. Um, are, do, are there any more of those Muzan edition tapes out? I know those, those sell out pretty quick. Um, the label sold out. I have a couple left okay. um, that I can um, send by mail. Okay, sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again um, for for chatting, and um, you know, stay safe out there in New York, and um, let us know how we can you know support you and other artists who uh, need it right now. Okay, we'll do. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot.